بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يحده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتثاتها وكل محتثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار So we begin our lesson today with obviously the sad news that I'm sure many of you have heard uh, which is that Sheikh Ubaid uh, whose book we are going through has passed away in the past uh, couple of days rahimahullah uh, we ask allah subhanahu to enter in him into jannatul firdaus and shower his mercy upon him so i just want to take a few minutes uh, before we start today's uh, lesson just to speak briefly about this issue and uh, the sheikh rahimahullah was roughly around 85 years of age and uh, he spent around 30 of his years as a teacher teaching as a mudarris and calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and from his teachers was Sheikh Hamad al-Ansari rahimahullah from the great scholars of Medina a muhaddith and likewise Sheikh Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad hafizahullah who is still alive a great scholar uh, in the city of Medina and uh, from that, uh, what the Sheikh uh, is known for is standing and speaking with the truth. If any of you recall, or uh, are that age where you can recall in the late 90s and the early 2000s, the Sheikh Hafizahullah was very outspoken against many of the uh, deviants who appeared, whether from uh, the extremists and the Khawarij, or whether from the other extreme, uh, the Mumayyiyah, you know, the people who are lenient, uh, and many shades in between. And the Sheikh has uh, some monumental uh, lectures uh, which he gave in that time period, which we have benefited from tremendously, uh, which we have translated and disseminated, and many of the people in the West have benefited tremendously from those particular uh, lectures and series, some of which have been turned into, into actual books. And the Sheikh himself, he knows and he recognizes, his statements are recorded, that the da'wah in the West was opened up for these scholars, like Sheikh Ubaid, Hafizahullah, uh, Rahimahullah Afwan, Rahimahullah, and you know, other scholars likewise in Medina, uh, through the brothers at Maktaba Salafiyya, and the Sheikh has many statements uh, openly stating this, that Maktaba Salafiyya here in the, uh, the UK became a doorway for them for giving da'wah to the West. And Alhamdulillah in the West, uh, in all the various countries, whether in Europe, whether in the UK, in Canada, in the US, uh, many of uh, the people of the Sunnah has benefited, have benefited from many of the Sheikh's works, basic texts, such as his explanation of Al-Usul, Al-Sitta, and his explanation of, of Al-Quwaid, Al-Arba, and many other short rasail, in which we find the Sheikh has a very beautiful uh, uslub, a very beautiful way in which he presents issues uh, very simply, very concisely, in very plain language, Extract, extracting all of the relevant, pertinent benefits from the text, from the material, which makes it very easy to actually uh, study from and also to uh, teach from as well. So the Sheikh has had a very uh, big effect or a tremendous effect or a, or a significant role to play along with other scholars in the Da'wah in the West in general and particularly in clarifying the Salafi way, the Salafi methodology, and also in taking the right positions and being firm in the right positions when it comes to 
issues of deviance and uh, deviations and innovators and people of misguidance, which has obviously aided the Sunnah a great, uh, the people of the Sunnah a great deal. Likewise, the Sheikh, for a, for a period of time, he was the Mushrif uh, for the uh, seminars that used to be organised by Maktaba Salafiyah in Medina. We used to take uh, many, many people from uh, from the West, and Medina was a gathering place for the uh, like a Dora, and Sheikh Obeid was the Mushrif for a period of time, uh, where he would specify the uh, you know he would ask other mashayikh to participate participate and students to participate to give the lectures in the actual uh, dorat and many many people used to travel and that was uh, really uh, beneficial uh, so we, we ask allah to reward the sheikh uh, greatly and tremendously uh, for all of that and to uh, shower him with his mercy now of course the death of the scholars is obviously a great uh, calamity and we have many, many statements from the people of knowledge, from the Sahaba and other than them. For example, the statement of Umar bin al-Khattab who said, Mawtu alfi abidin ahwanu min mawti alimin basirin bihalalillah wa haramihi. He said that a thousand worshippers die is less is more insignificant than the death of a single scholar who is insightful in the halal, what Allah has made halal and what Allah has made haram. And Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, commenting upon this statement of Umar bin al-Khattab, he said, the angle from the statement of Umar is that this scholar this scholar is able to, with his knowledge of the halal and the haram and his knowledge of the religion, is able to destroy whatever Iblis is able to build. So whatever Iblis builds of his misguidance, then the scholar is able to destroy that with his knowledge and with his guidance. But as for the worshipper, the one who is the abid, the one who worships and is devoted to Allah and he does many of the, of the nawafil in terms of the act of worship, then his benefit is restricted only to himself. Now he's the only one who benefits from his nawafil uh, prayers you know, at home or you know, his fasting and whatever else he might do. That's only to himself. Whereas the alim, his benefit covers you know, all the people who, who listen to him. Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, he likewise said, do you know how Islam is uh, harmed or destroyed or diminished? And he says, there is in a qabila, yaqunu fil qabila, aliman. There are two scholars in a, you know, in, in a, a, a town or a city. So one of them dies and half of the knowledge disappears. And the other one dies and then all of the knowledge disappears. So the disappearance of the scholars is the disappearance of knowledge. He also said, radiallahu anhu, مَوْتُ الْعَالِمِ ثُلْمَةٌ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ لَا يَصُدُّهَا شَيْءٍ مَخْتَلَفَ الْلَيْلُ وَالنَّهَارِ That the death of a scholar is, it's like a, it brings a defect or a flaw in Islam. Just like you have a wall which is, you know, is struck by uh, something and, and it's damaged. So the death of a scholar leaves such uh, impact upon, upon Islam and its people. And nothing will put it back or repair it because the scholar has now gone. And the ilm and the understanding and the fiqh that he carried with him in his heart, in his mind, ha has now gone. You can't now bring that back because it, it, it's been lost. And so these types of statements, uh, and likewise... Uh, Saeed bin Jubair, he said, he was asked the question, what is the destruction of the people? And he said, it is when their scholars pass away, when their scholars die. And there are many other statements like this about the death of the scholars. But I want to just quickly play you a short clip from Sheikh Obeid himself. Because many years back, maybe over a decade or so, in the late 2000s, when one of the 
other great scholars, Sheikh Zaid bin Hadi al-Madkhili, Hafidhahullah, Rahimahullah, Afwan Rahimahullah, from the uh, southern area of uh, the Mamlaka, he passed away, and the Sheikh was asked to give some you know, short words about the death of the scholar. And so this is basically what he, what he said, I'll play it to you, and uh, maybe just translate as we go along, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, just so you can hear the, uh, the speech of the Sheikh. So the questioner is basically saying that you've heard of the death of Sheikh Zaid, and so what advices or directions do you give about the death of the people of knowledge and how the people of the Sunnah, how do they basically take that? So he said, first of all, we say, Alhamdulillah, this is the qada and the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is from the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so therefore, to Allah, to Allah belongs what he uh, gives and to Allah belongs what he takes. So just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to him belongs all of the dominion. He owns everything. In the same way, to him belongs the amr, meaning whatever he does in the creation. So just as he owns everything, then likewise he is the one who disposes of all of the affairs in his creation, which includes obviously giving life and taking life, you know, taking people away. And from that is taking the scholars away. The second point is that it is not strange that the people of knowledge should pass away. So this is due to a number of reasons, meaning that it is not strange that the people of knowledge should pass away. Because first of all, the greatest calamity to befall the Muslims is the passing away of the Messenger Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is the greatest calamity. After that is the passing away of his Sahaba. Then the passing away of the Imma, meaning the great uh, scholars, the leading scholars who came after the Sahaba from the Tabi'een and the Tabi'een and the Imams like Imam uh, uh, Malik and Shafi'i and Abu Hanifa and uh, Ahmed bin Hanbal and so on and so forth. And secondly, also the reason why this you know, news about the death of the scholars is also not strange, is because the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself has informed us about this affair. And this is what is related in the hadith of Abdullah bin Amr radiallahu anhu in the hadith in which the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam he said that indeed Allah does not take away the knowledge by snatching it away from the people by by erasing it you know from the people So 
بغير فافتوا بغير علم فضلوا واضلوا So the messenger said indeed Allah does not snatch away take the knowledge by snatching snatching it away from the people but he takes away the people of knowledge so he causes the people of knowledge to die and when the people of knowledge they die then no scholar is left and when no scholar is left then the people take the ignorant ones as 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 scholars and so when these people are asked they then give verdicts upon ignorance and then they go astray themselves and then they lead other people astray so the sheikh mentioned this hadith indicating that it is not strange that the people of knowledge should die because this is a reality that the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam himself informed us about So the Sheikh says that from another angle, this hadith itself it necessitates upon us that we take uh, admonition, and we take you know we, we take an admonition from this from this hadith. With respect to the scholars that are still alive, so even though. scholars have passed away this hadith which informs us about the passing away of scholars it also gives us an admonition as to how we should be with the scholars who are still alive which is to benefit from them uh, to go to them to benefit from them and to uh, praise them and to respect them just as likewise we make dua for those who have passed away from them that allah forgives them that allah shows mercy to them and that allah azawajal rewards them for their service to islam and the muslims So this is the the advice and the speech of Sheikh Ubaid himself upon the passing away of a great scholar you know over well over 10 years ago and we simply repeat the same advice of the Sheikh as it relates to his own passing away uh, that we ask Allah azza wa jal to uh, show uh, mercy to him to forgive him and to reward him tremendously for his service to Islam and the Muslims So with that uh we move on to today's uh, topic from sheikh obaid rahimahullah and today's topic is the explanation of the hadith of the man who killed 99 men and so this is the hadith uh, of abu sa'id al khudri radiyallahu anhu and he said i'll translate the hadith for brevity he said that shall i not inform you with what i heard from the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam which my two ears heard and which my heart memorized he said indeed there was a servant who killed 99 men and then there came to him the opportunity to make toba or there came to him the desire to make toba so he asked about who is the most knowledgeable of the people of the land So he was directed to a man. And so he came to this man and he said to this man, "I have killed 99 men. Is there repentance for me? Is there tawbah for me?" For me. And so this man said, who is supposed to be a scholar and knowledgeable, this man said, "Repentance after killing 99 men?" So then this man, he actually used his sword to kill him. and then he took the number to 100 then once again it came to him that you know he he desired to make a uh, toba and so then once again he asked about who is the most knowledgeable of the people of the land so he was directed to another man so he came to this man and he said indeed i have killed 100 men is there any toba for me is there repentance for me 
So he said, Wayhak, Woman Yahulu Bainaka Wabaina Tawbah. He said, Woe be to you. Who can come between you and repentance? Leave from this evil city or town that you are in and go to a righteous city, such and such city. Go to there and worship Allah therein. This is the advice that this scholar gave to him. So this man, he left and he desired to go to this righteous you know, city. And on the way, on the path, his appointed time came to him, meaning death came to him. And the angels of mercy and the angels of punishment came to take his soul and they disputed with each other. And then the hadith continues and um, they basically uh, argued and, you know, the angels of mercy said, you know, he, he came repenting, so we should take him. And the angels of punishment said, no, well, we should take him because he, he was disobedient. So then another narrator, uh, Hammam, he gives further information about the hadith. And he says that Allah then sent an angel to arbitrate between the two sets of disputing angels. And he said, look at which of the two places he is closest to. The city of evil that he left or the city of good that he was traveling towards. Which of those two is he closer to? And so another narrator, Qatada, who said, Al-Hassan narrated to us that uh, when death came to this particular man, uh, he ended up being closer to the righteous city at the point where he died and he was further from the evil city. So they put him alongside the inhabitants of the righteous city and on account of that he was actually forgiven he was forgiven so from this hadith the sheikh takes uh, a number of uh, benefits he begins by saying that this hadith is actually about nations of the past from the bani uh, from the bani israel israel or nations uh, from the past and the Messenger of Allah was given information about these events so that they could be given as an admonition and as a, a, as a warning so that basically some people, the people could be encouraged towards the path of good and increasing in good and so that the people from, from the stories are those which, the which make the people keep away from sin and disobedience. And this is the nature of these uh, stories. And in the hadith, there are numerous uh, benefits. Uh, first of all, first benefit the Sheikh says is that Allah He accepts sincere repentance. No matter what evil you have done, no matter what sins you have committed, if the tawbah is sincere, then Allah accepts that repentance. And there are many, many ayat, many, many hadith which have come with respect to this and the Sheikh says that maybe we will give a specific lecture on the issue of a tawbah itself but in any case from the ayat in the Quran which indicate this meaning is the statement of Allah Azawajal inna allaha la yaghfiru an yushraka bihi wa yaghfiru maduna dhalika liman yasha Allah does not forgive that shirk is committed with him but he forgives what is less than that to whomever he wills and this proves that no matter, no, matter, no matter what sin you come with, accept shirk, then Allah will forgive you. Right? Even if you commit shirk and you repent from it before dying, then Allah will forgive you. Right? But if you die upon shirk, then there's no forgiveness. But if you re repent even from shirk, Allah forgives shirk as well. But if you die upon shirk, Allah will not forgive you as occurs in this ayah. But what is less than that, then Allah will forgive you. This indicates Allah forgives all, all sins prior to death, even, even shirk itself, but not after death. And likewise, from the many ayat in the Quran, Allah, Allah says, wa inni lagafarun liman taba wa amana wa amila wa amila saliha thumma ihtada. Indeed, I am uh, ghaffar wa inni lagafarun. I am 
uh, oft forgiving for whoever repents and believes and does righteous deeds and then he pursues guidance. And so there are many, many other ayat in the Quran as the Shaykh indicated in showing that Allah accepts repentance whatever sin you might come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with uh, whether before death or after death but if it is after death then it cannot be it cannot be shirk shirk will not be forgiven the second benefit uh, that the shaykh mentions from this is that he indicates that the people of knowledge as you can see from this hadith that this man who killed the 100 the 99 men he first of all went to someone who was not really a scholar this was not really a scholar and you can see the difference between a scholar and a non scholar and the one who is a true scholar, he is more sincere and of more benefit and of more guidance to the Ummah in dealing with the affairs of the Ummah and treating these types of issues. And as Ibn Mas'ud said, the people will never cease to be upon goodness. La yazalun nas salihin mutamasikin. ما أتاهم العلم من أصحاب محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ومن أكابرهم فإذا أتاهم من أصاغرهم هلكوا that the people will never cease to be upon goodness so long as their as their knowledge comes from the companions of Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم and from the senior ones right the older the senior ones but when they take the knowledge from the lowly ones then they will perish then they will perish and the shaykh goes on to continue a bit further he mentions some other points but then he goes on to mention a bit further that this man in this man he went to an ascetic a non-scholar a worshipper who was given to devotion and ibadah who's not really a knowledge who's not really uh, a scholar or had knowledge and what this what this worshipper did is that he caused him to despair he said repentance after after you kill 99 men so this remark that he made led this man to despair of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and as a result he obviously got frustrated thinking well I can't be forgiven because he came to this man wanting to escape this sin wanting to be relieved from this evil he's been caught in so now if you if you go to someone and, and this person says repentance after you've after you after you've done all this evil then the man's thinking well there's no way i can escape this come out of this evil so i might as well just kill this man as well right to satisfy his you know the the the, the what is in his soul of being entangled in evil when he heard this so this shows that the difference between that and between when he's taken to, to an alim, when he went to a scholar, the scholar, what did the scholar do? As the Sheikh says, he says, فَسَكَّنَ الْعَالِمَ نَفْسَهُ وَطَمْأَنَهُ وَهَدَأَ رَوْعَهُ So basically, the scholar, he, um, he uh, pacified him. And he gave him serenity and calmness in his heart, right? The very thing he was looking for. Because if you've committed sins, great sins, and you are disturbed, and you know you are entangled in sins, and you want to escape those sins, and you go to someone seeking help, then obviously your, your disturbed soul and your soul entangled in all of this evil and sin it needs to be given reassurance. It needs to be made tranquil. It needs to be calmed down and, and you know, be, be told what will lead to that tranquility. And so what the scholar said to him made the kind of agitation in his self, he basically calmed it down by saying, by saying to him, who can come in between you and between repentance? So the man hears this and he knows he has a history of evil behind him, a history of, of killing people, murdering people. And he's got that whole history and that's heavy on his shoulders and he's seeking to be forgiven. And then he's told he hears, who can come between you 
and repentance what do you think the effect is going to be upon him right he's going to this is what he's seeking as opposed to the ignorant worshiper the ignorant ascetic who said to him repentance forgiveness after after 99 after killing 99 men you see that's, that's the difference and uh, so uh, the sheikh was on to say that the reason why he killed 99 men and then made it into 100 is because the evil he was still entangled in the evil right he wanted to escape the evil but when he was told well you can't and there's no repentance for you then it didn't put an end to that agitation in his in his soul and so he remained entangled in that evil and went and killed this this ascetic and this worshipper as well and made it into a hundred so uh, the sheikh goes on to say that um there were two benefits that the scholar gave him the first benefit the scholar gave him is that he calmed his soul he reassured his soul and you know he told him what uh, basically he was seeking and and looking looking for and the second benefit and favor was that he gave him practical advice as to how he can put an end to this trial and this tribulation he's been entangled in and he said your city is a city of evil uh, you should leave it and go to such and such city and remain there and worship Allah therein and what the second benefit shows is the importance of choosing righteous company righteous companionship because the righteous companion you know if you if you become lax and slack then he will aid you and if you become forgetful he will remind you and if you are ignorant of something then he will he will teach you and if you become lazy then maybe he will encourage you and give you stimulation and motivation right this type of companion is very different to a companion of evil because the companion of evil is someone who basically he kills what is in your heart of any desire for wanting to do good deeds and you know for wanting to go towards that which is good and he will stir and stimulate what is you know in the soul of various types of evil of various types of major sins so for example some people they uh, they have a desire for wealth and then they entice you with the same thing other people have a desire for lusts and the satisfaction of lusts and they will entice you and draw you into the same type of thing and so this is the nature of uh, friendship and companionship and as the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he said al-mar'u ala dini khalilihi falyanzur ahadukum man yukhalil a man is upon the religion of his friend so let one of you look at whom he is befriending and finally the third benefit that we take from this hadith is that indeed actions that you know a, a person his life is sealed upon whatever action he dies that is what your life will be sealed upon innama al-a'malu bil khawatim indeed actions are by you know the, the, their final outcomes bil khawatim you die upon whatever you you were doing at the time that you that you, that you died and this indicates that every man you know in this case this man he left his city which was a city of evil he wanted to go to the city of god wanting to be righteous wanting to worship allah wanting to forget and leave everything that he was involved in this is what he this is what he intended and he wanted to sit with the righteous people but obviously death came to him and so therefore he was treated and he will be raised upon the state in which he died which is in the state of repentance in the state of repentance and in the state of making amends and therefore allah's mercy reached him and so this is a general principle in fact this is a hadith itself the messenger sallam himself he said this innama al-a'mal bil khawatim indeed actions are upon that which with which they are sealed 
So this is, these are benefits taken from the hadith of this, uh, of the hadith of the man who killed 99 uh, men. And so those benefits, first of all, sincere repentance, you know, sincere repentance is always accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, secondly, the great difference between uh, the people of knowledge and those lesser than them, the people of knowledge, they bring tremendous benefit to the ummah by their knowledge of halal and haram and by their insight and in giving pertinent advice to people, which, which brings rectification. And also, thirdly, that what this hadith shows us is that actions are, you know, are on the basis of that which your life ends, which is an admonition for us all to always be in a state of righteous deeds, to avoid sin and to fear dying upon sin and the likes. So this is the end of this particular uh, short, brief lecture of the Sheikh. We'll continue and make a start into the next lecture, which is Ahkamul Ghiba, the rulings of backbiting and the various situations or scenarios with respect to backbiting. And this is a very, very beneficial uh, subject matter. And what the Sheikh Rahimahullah does is that he comments upon what is in uh, Riyadhul Salihin of Imam al Nawawi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Uh, so the reader is going to read from what Imam al Nawawi said. So uh, in the book of Imam al-Nawi, Riyadhul Salihin, there is a chapter, uh, a section, Kitabul Umur al-Manhi Anha, book regarding those affairs which are prohibited. And under there, there is a topic, a subject, Bab, Tahrimul Riba, Wal Amr Bihifdil Lisan, chapter on the prohibition of backbiting and the protection of the tongue. And in this chapter, Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, he brings the ayah from the Qur'an, from Surah Al-Hujurat, وَلَا يَغْتَبْ بَعْدُكُمْ بَعْضًا أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَحْمَ أَخِيهِ مَيْتَ فَكَرِحْتُمُوهُ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَوَّابُ الرَّحِيمِ Do not backbite some of you, eat, you know, each other. Does one of you love that he should eat the flesh of his dead brother that you such that such that you uh, di dislike it fear allah indeed allah is the one who accepts repentance and the one who shows mercy after mentioning this verse and other verses imam an-nawawi said know that every person should protect his tongue from all types of speech, except speech in which its benefit becomes apparent to him. Right? So meaning that all speech you should avoid, except speech in which you can see clear benefit. Where the maslaha, the benefit becomes apparent to you. And when, and when speech, it's, um, you know, the, the speech is equal where basically if I say these words and if I don't say these words, the maslaha is equal, right? If it's that situation, then it is from the sunnah to withhold from that speech. See, these are principles. Only speak when the benefit of the speech is clearly apparent to you right which means that you know a person should think and and calculate things before he actually speaks if i say this what is is there a mas maslaha what is the actual maslaha is it apparent to me if it is then yes let me speak and if it is the case where well if i say this this will be the mas maslaha and if i don't say this the maslaha is basically equal then in that case, it's best that I don't say it, right? This is the general principle that uh, Al-Nawi mentions. The sunnah is to withhold from that type of speech whose maslaha is equal either way. Why? Because he says, 
لأنه قد ينجر الكلام المباح إلى حرام أو مكروح This is because even speech which even if it is not haram itself like it would be permitted because the maslaha is, is equal either way even that type of speech can lead and draw to what is haram or what is makruh and this he says wadalika kathirun fil you know this is something that we actually experience and you know uh, observe habitually we, we see it all the time around us wassalamatu la ya'diluha shay and there is nothing equal to safety there's nothing equal to you know being uh, in, in a safe position and not opening your mouth having to regret it later on then he brings numerous ahadith on this topic from them is the hadith of abu huraira radiyallahu anhu who said man that the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi said man kana yu'minu billahi wal yawm al akhir falyaqul khaira aw liyasmut Whoever believes in Allah and the last day, then let him speak good or let him remain silent. Very clear. This is the principle from the hadith itself. Speak that which is good, if you know it to be good. Otherwise, just keep silent. And Nawawi says, وَهَذَا صَرِيحٌ أَنَّهُ يَنْبَغِي أَنْ لَا يَتَكَلَّمْ إِلَّا إِذَا كَانَ الْكَلَامَ خَيْرًا وَهُوَ الَّذِي ظَهَرَتْ مَسْلَحَتُهُ وَمَتَى شَكَّ فِي ظُهُورِ الْمَسْلَحَةِ this hadith is very clear that it is not desirable to speak except when the speech is good. And this is when the maslaha, its benefit becomes apparent to you. And when you doubt in the maslaha, when you doubt you know, about the actual benefit of what you're going to say, then do not speak. And then from Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, who said, I said to the Messenger of Allah, which of the Muslims are best? He said, "Man salim al-Muslimun min lisanihi wa yadihi." He whom the Muslims are safe from with respect to his tongue and his hands. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Then he mentions the hadith of Sahil bin Sa'ad who said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, مَنْ يَضْمَنْ لِي مَا بَيْنَ لَحْيَيْهِ مَا بَيْنَ رِجْلَيْهِ أَدْمَنْ لَهُ الْجَنَّةِ Whoever guarantees for me that which is between his two cheeks, meaning his tongue, and that which is between his two uh, legs, meaning his private parts, then I will guarantee him Jannah, meaning the one who protects these two from falling into that which is unlawful. Likewise, the hadith of Abi Huraira, radiallahu anhu, that he heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, Innal abda liyatakallamu bilkalima ma yatabayyanu fiha yazillu biha ila nar ab'ada mimma bayna al-mashriqi wal-maghrib. Indeed, a servant he speaks with a word which he um, 
does not, you know, does not uh, think about whether it is good or not, and he slips and falls on account of it into the hellfire with a distance which is greater than that which is between the east and the west. And then the hadith of Abi Huraira, which is actually specifically to do with backbiting, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he said, قَالَ أَتَدْرُونَ مَا Do you know that which is backbiting? قَالُوا اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَعْلَمُ Allah and His Messenger know best. So then he explained what is backbiting. He said, ذِكْرُ أَخَاكَ بِمَا يَقْرَحُ To mention your brother with that which he dislikes. With that which he would dislike to be mentioned with. قِيلَ أَفَرَأَيْتَ إِنْ كَانَ فِي أَخِي مَا أَقُولُ So then someone said to the Messenger, What if, what if, the thing that I said about my brother was actually in him. What, I was being tr- what, what if I was being truthful? That what I actually said, this person actually had what I said and I was truthful in what I said. The messenger said, قَالَ إِنْ كَانَ فِيهِ مَا قِيلُ قَالَ إِنْ كَانَ فِيهِ مَا تَقُولُ فَقَدْ اِخْتَبْتَهُ وَإِنْ لَمْ يَكُنْ فِيهِ فَقَدْ بَحَدْتَهُ So he said, if what you said about him was actually true and he had what you said about him, this would count as backbiting. This would count as backbiting. And if what you said about him was not in him, he didn't have what you said about him, this now you have slandered him. Right? So this is a hadith reported by Muslim. And uh, the Shaykh, Shaykh Ubaid, rahimullah, he says that from the intelligence and the insight of An-Nawawi rahimahullah is that he um, you know came to this uh, that he warned from riba from backbiting specifically and warning from letting loose the tongue without really thinking about the consequences of the affairs in general and uh, you know the verses which he read from Surah Al-Hujarat, which mentions about not backbiting your brother, there is a number of points with respect to that ayah. First of all, this verse that we mentioned at the beginning, it makes a person flee from backbiting his brother Muslim. And this is by giving the similitude of likening it to eating the flesh of the corpse of the dead person. And Allah Azza wa Jal, He said, أَيُحِبُّ أَحَدُكُمْ أَنْ يَأْكُلَ لَحْمَ أَخِيهِ مَيْتَ Does one of you wish to eat the flesh of his dead brother while he's dead? And everybody knows, the Shaykh says, that, you know, uh, a person, you know, who is able to eat the flesh of something dead, you know, which, which is actually lawful. No one amongst us would like to eat flesh of a dead animal, even though it might even be lawful for us. So how then about how then would a person therefore proceed to eat the flesh of a person, a man, who has died? This is even more repugnant. You would want to keep away from that even more so. And so this similitude was given in this ayah to make us flee from this, from this, you know, from this evil. The second point taken from this verse is that at the end of the verse, Allah Zawajal, He said, uh, He said, Wattakullah, Inna Allah Tawabur Rahim. Fee Allah, indeed, Allah is the acceptor of repentance and He's merciful. Which means that this is, is a major sin. Because He mentioned the word or His name, uh, at, uh, Tawab, that He is the acceptor of repentance. This is a proof that the actual sin being mentioned is something that necessitates or requires repentance, which indicates that it is from the major sins, the kabair, the kabair. The Sheikh goes on to explain that sins are of two types. They are the, the first type are the sagair, the small sins, such as, for example, the unlawful look, looking at something which is unlawful, or touching something which is unlawful. 
These types of sins can be expiated by other righteous deeds, by, by prayer, by fasting, by charity, by visiting the sick and other types of righteous deeds, by, by dhikr and you know, so on and so forth. Then there are the major sins. These can only be forgiven by way of tawbah, unlike the minor sins. The minor sins can be expiated without tawbah. The major sins, they require tawbah for them to be forgiven, sincere tawbah. And as the Sheikh says, that he will try, inshallah, to speak about tawbah separately in a separate uh, lecture. Then, Imam al Nawawi, rahimahullah, and what we'll do is we'll make a start on this point and then we'll finish and we'll continue this in the next lesson. After mentioning the ruling on backbiting, that it is something repugnant, that it is something evil and it should be avoided, and the similitude given is a very, you know, uh, a strong similitude about eating the flesh of someone who is dead. That's what backbiting is like. Imam Annawi then goes on to explain that there are certain situations, there are six situations which in the Sharia backbiting would be would be uh, permitted. And uh, the Sheikh says that riba is not allowed except fi amrin shar'i la yumkin al-wusul ilayhi illa biha. This is the guiding principle for the backbiting which is allowed. Backbiting, even though we've seen the very severe strict prohibition here, it is allowed in order to fulfill a legislated affair which cannot be fulfilled except by way of backbiting. Except through backbiting, right? There are certain situations where to fulfill something that is a Sharia affair and required in the Sharia, you will not be able to do it except with backbiting. Right? So these are scenarios in which backbiting is permissible. And so he mentions from An-Nabawi, Bab ma yubahu min al-ghiba. Chapter on that which is permissible of backbiting. He says, No, i'lam anna al-ghiba tubah li gharadin sahih shari'i la yumkin al-wusulu ilayhi illa biha. Know that backbiting is permissible for a correct legislated objective which it is not possible to achieve except by way of it, except by way of backbiting. And the Sheikh says, Nawi says, وَهُوَ بِسِتَّةِ asbab. This has six reasons, six things justify backbiting. So he mentions Al-Awwal, which is At-Tadhallum. Al-Awwal At-Tadhallum. At-Tadhallum, is to make a complaint about oppression, to make a complaint about being oppressed. So it is permissible for the madhloom that he goes and makes a complaint of the oppression to the, to, the, to the leader, to the qadi, to the judge and other than them. Right? To anyone who has some sort of authority or has the ability, the power to establish justice with respect to the one who is oppressing him. So he can go to this Adi or the one who has the ability to end this injustice and he says, so and so, he mentions him by name, he is oppressing me and being unjust to me. Right. So this is the first scenario, the first situation which allows and permits backbiting. Sheikh Ubaid comments upon this, Rahimullah, he says, this is very clear. A person is oppressed, he takes the affair to a qadi, to a judge, to a person of authority. He mentions what the oppression is and he mentions the individual. He mentions the individual because it's not possible for him to be aided and for the oppression to be stopped except if the actual individual is, is being mentioned. Right? So, for example, it could be a neighbor, it could be, you know, who's uh, uh, tipping rubbish onto, onto uh, your, your pathway or something and harming you and your children and whatever it might be and he's not stopping and, you know, then you go to the authorities uh, and you say that this man is being oppressive and you have to mention who it actually is because otherwise the oppression will not be stopped. Uh, 
So here, remember the definition that al-riba is not permitted except fi amrin shar'i in a legislated affair. La yumkin al-wusul ilayhi illa biha, which is not possible to achieve except by way of that. So this is one example, right? To make complaint of an actual oppression. This now is not backbiting. This is not the prohibited uh, backbiting. Then the second, and we'll finish with this inshallah ta'ala. Uh, the second, he says, Athani al isti'anatu ala al munkar al sawab. The second permissible type of backbiting is when you want to seek assistance in changing the evil, changing evil which is present in the society. And you want to return a sinful, disobedient person to that which is correct. Right? So he says, وَيَقُولْ لِمَنْ يَرْجُوا قُدْرَتَهُ عَلَىٰ إِزَالَةِ الْمُنْكَرِ فُلَانْ يَعْمَلُ كَذَا فَاسْجُرْهُ عَنْهُ وَنَهُوِ ذَلِكِ So he goes to someone whom he knows has the power and ability and he says, so-and-so is, um, you know, uh, he says, so-and-so is doing such and such. Prevent him from it. And what is similar to this? So what is his intent? His intent is to stop the evil. To stop the evil. This is what his intention should be. If his intention is anything else, this now is unlawful. Right? Meaning that if his intention is not to stop the actual evil that person might be doing, maybe it could be, well, for example, let's say, there's a person in the family or whatever it might be and he's do doing something evil maybe he is you know smoking or maybe he's doing something like this and you know he wants to go to someone else in the family who has some ability authority some respect and whose word will be listened to and he goes to him and says you know so and so abdullah zaid you know uh, he is doing such and such can you can you uh, advise him to stop the munkar that he's doing the smoking that he's doing that's harming himself and harming his children and whatever it might be. If this is, is his intention to stop the evil, this now is permissible type of backbiting. But if this is not his intention and he thinks, well, okay, if I can portray this person to be evil to other members of the family, then I've got some sort of benefit out of that. And his, his motive is something else now. It's not to necessarily stop the munkar but he has some other gharad, some other objective or motive, this now does not become the permissible form of backbiting. Because his intention is not, to, is not the ending of the munkar. It is actually something else. Right? So uh, the shaykh says that uh, commenting upon this second permitted form of backbiting, uh, he says that this isti'ana, this seeking help from someone who has ability and power and standing uh, to, you know, to subdue the sinful people and, you know, the sinful people who spread their evil or do their evil openly amongst the Muslims and, you know, they, they call people to, to evil. It is permissible to seek aid from others against them, from those who are able to prevent them from their evil and to cut off their evil from the people of Islam. Uh, such as the Sheikh gives examples, you know, there are, there, are, there are places where people go to smoke or they, or they buy cigarettes or, you know, there are places of evil where people visit to do fahsha and munkar to do evil things. Uh, it's permissible to go and either report to the authorities or report to someone with power to show or to say that such and such individ individual is doing this, he's selling this. And such as person, you can mention that by name where the intention is to put an end to that munkar. And so here, this is permissible, permissible uh, to do this. So this is the second um, exception to backbiting. So the first is to complain about oppression, to put an end to oppression. The second is to put an end to evils which are present around you or in the society and you go to a person of authority, person who has the qudra and ability, and you mention such and such person doing this, such and such person doing that, such and such person doing this, and with the intent, the niyyah of ending uh, the, the actual evil, not for any other uh, motive or objective. So these are two of the six 
permissible forms of backbiting which do not enter into that verse in Surat Al-Hujurat. There are exceptions to that, what is in the verse. So inshallah we'll end there and we'll continue with the remaining exceptions in the next lesson inshallah ta'ala. والحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين